Good morning. Welcome to Die Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, one chapter at a time, and we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9. This is, like we were saying the last couple days, one of these chapters that you're looking forward to when you're reading Isaiah. You know, we get started with these visions of you know, just fire and darkness, but you know, finally here you get for to us a child is born, and you get this very beautiful prophecy that gets quoted in the New Testament in a big way. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then of course you get that part that you read at Christmas time. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so yeah, clearly this is this prophecy that gets applied to our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming and the revelation of God to his people, even in the midst of everything that was going on at the time when they were under oppression by the Romans. But, you know, let's not forget, though, that there was this original context here, right? And it goes on to talk about, um, you know, reason or Razin, right? The Syrians. And it talks about the the North and the Assyrians coming. So, what does all that have to do with that time, too? And so today we're connecting the dots and joining us to connect some of those dots. We've got Pastor Bernard Ross, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Alma, Missouri. Welcome back, brother. So happy to have you back on. How you doing? Well, AJ, I'm doing great. I'm happy to be back on myself and to hear your voice. I, I like to say that I have a face for radio, and it would be a shame to not use that more. So here I am. <laughs> yes, this is this is some of uh, the, that Bernie trademark self-deprecation. So <laughs> really. I do love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so good to have you back. And uh, I know that we were kind of joking around that you keep picking all the good chapters for yourself. I think the last time you you had what was it? Was it John like twenty or John twenty one? Oh, it was John twenty. It was the resurrection. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very good. And so this is, um, well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what New Testament connections we can make. But yeah, this is one of these chapters where definitely if you were just to pick out like, you know, 10 chapters out of Isaiah, like, you know, favorites, you'd probably pick like Isaiah 6, maybe uh, maybe 7, maybe 9, you know, um, I mean, maybe this even goes like top 5, you know, and then there's a couple like, you know, from the the last several chapters, but this is just one of the big moments of the whole book, right? Oh, absolutely. If you uh, if you go basically into any LCMS church around midnight on Christmas Eve, you are going to hear this as the Old Testament reading, and there's a very good reason for that. I mean, this yeah, is one of those classic messianic texts that points ahead to the Messiah that would come to save people of God and need to save all people. Right. Yeah. Well, no, and that's, um, you, you know, I mean, not that everybody does that, that midnight, um, that midnight service, but like for those who do, it's, can, it is, it's really, it's really cool. And, um, you know, it's, a, you're staying up past bedtime there, but yeah, it's, it's, um, you get Isaiah nine, what is it? Uh, two to seven for a Christmas midnight. Yeah. And that's like every year. Right. And it also, um, it also comes up every so often during a uh, epiphany for, uh, kind of similar reasons. Yeah, part of Isaiah 9 is uh, during uh, lectionary series A, you'll see Isaiah 9, I think it's versus, I don't know where it starts, but it ends at 7, I'm pretty sure. Okay. 
Well, yeah, just the, the big part being, though, of course, like the on, on them, the light has shined or the light has shown. Yeah. That, that, that was um something that the ESV updated. But, of course, epiphany being that, like, shining idea. So, yeah, we definitely oh, connect it like John did, right, that he is the, the light who has been revealed to us. Mm-hmm. He is the light of the world, as Christ himself said. Whoever right. follows me will not walk in darkness. Right. So I, I think that in some ways that's going to be kind of the easy thing to talk about. I think the thing that's going to be kind of harder to understand is like how this connects to what was going on in the day of Isaiah and Ahaz and Hezekiah. That's um, I think probably that's the part that sort of almost gets skipped over, but it, it's still definitely in view uh, th- though, you know, though perhaps it does get eclipsed, it's, um, th- there's still something that we should pay attention to in that context too, right? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, when you look through the Old Testament, it's 75% of our Bible, and yet, in terms of what people actually remember or focus on, you could probably, con- I'm not saying you should do this, but you could condense the new- the Old Testament itself down to... A, a sadly thin amount if you want to focus on what people remember, but you're, you're absolutely right. The context of what was going on with God's people and with uh, the politics and geography of the surrounding nations, it's that context that these prophecies and these promises were first made. Right. And I think it does a disservice to the Lord himself who acted in history to ignore those contexts, just to focus on, oh, well, what does this say for me? I think that's kind of selfish, actually. Well, that's that's actually, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, thinking about it in terms of like, well, you know, basically God created the world, and and then not long after, I came onto the scene, you know, and uh, (laughs) it's sort of like, you know, maybe maybe in a way that, yeah, I can see that, that is sort of like a an egocentric look at history that there's, there was a lot of things that happened before you and I were born and actually uh, some of them were fairly important. So yeah, thinking, thinking a look at what God has done uh, among his people beforehand. And as you were saying too, this is talking about God and, and the way that we honor God is by acknowledging, as you said, his action in history and it's it's not as if this is some kind of you know legend like you can kind of just condense the whole old testament like you were saying down to like well you know he created the world there was sin and then you know uh, he he i guess it was an exodus or something like that and then you know not long after jesus was born and you just kind of like you know um skip well, you know, unfortunately with american christianity especially that tends to in some cases be how it does i mean i'm sure you right. remember about Eight years ago, there was that uh, that Bible miniseries. Mm. Yeah. And it starts off with Noah, old Scottish Noah in the boat, telling the story of Adam and Eve. And yeah. If you pay attention to where they jump from, you have massive, massive, massively important parts of the Old Testament that are just completely left out. Well, it gets from... Yeah. Noah up to, you know, the patriarchs, then you get the Exodus, and then it jumps from the Exodus to a couple judges, you get David, and then it just fast-forwards, basically, to the coming of Christ. Now, maybe I'm being a—maybe I'm not remembering it exactly correct, and that might be a little uncharitable of me, but— well, that's By interesting. Large, I, I, I remember the series gets... coming on, okay. and I remember um, 
I mean, wasn't it like, I, I feel like I, the whatever, like for whatever reason, I couldn't watch the series when it did come on, but yeah, that, that is, um, it's interesting skipping from David to the time of Christ. Cause certainly there was a lot going on. And as we've been talking about on thy strong word, looking at, um, Daniel and Ezra, I mean, so much of the Bible, actually so much of the old Testament, that 75% that you were talking about talks about the Babylonian exile. And I, I mean, basically if you, if you were to skip the period between Daniel and and uh, sorry, uh, David, as you were saying, and and then the coming of our Lord. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the number would be. You, you mentioned seventy five percent is the Old Testament. It, it might be that like half the Old Testament ends up having to do with the exiles somehow. So I mean, you don't want to skip like thirty or forty percent of the Bible. If you jump from David to the New Testament, and if memory serves me correct, that Bible miniseries skipped over Isaiah completely. If you can believe that, sadly. Mm. Uh, at, at that point, if you just jump from David to Jesus, I mean, you're cutting out First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. You're losing just about every single one of the prophetic books. Right. You're cutting exactly. out half the Psalms. You're skipping Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. It would just be a tragedy. And yet, how many of us do that simply because that's what we're used to doing? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. It's well taken. Well, let's make sure that we don't skip it and we we give this its proper and due attention here. And so we can get started by reading the first, honestly, just the first verse, which is rather long as verses go. And there's some questions to answer just in terms of how it links between the two chapters and even where the chapter break properly goes. But before we do that, would you say a prayer for us and for everybody listening? Absolutely. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear God, our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have called us out of the darkness into the marvelous light of your Son, Jesus. And we ask you to allow his light to shine in our hearts and in our minds this day as we have the privilege of reading the scriptures that you wrote through Isaiah, your prophet, Please feed us with your holy word that we may be nourished and strengthened by seeing how you acted in history to promise the redemption of us all. And it is in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and read that first verse and take a look at some of these uh, introductory questions here. So this is chapter 9 in the English Standard Version, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All right, so he's got pause there. Um, so it, it seems like there's some kind of transition going on. I mean, certainly the verse itself, like in the former time, but in the latter time, that's, that's a very mm -hmm. clear transition there. But uh, there, there's kind of a question of, where does the where where does the new chapter really start? And then kind of the question is like, well, does it matter or why does it then? Um, because here in English, we started off, but there will be no gloom. But if you look at the Hebrew, right, that's actually another verse in the Hebrew. I think it actually goes up to, you know, we stop at verse 22, but that's actually chapter 8, verse 23 in the Hebrew. So what's what what is this comment about the no gloom how is it that maybe it goes with one chapter or the other how does this not just uh function as a transition in terms of what's going on with the darkness and the light but uh going from chapter eight to chapter nine 
Well, Chapter 8, as you covered in depth yesterday, you have, just glancing at the heading, you have that great coming invasion. Mm -hmm. You have this prophecy that Israel, the northern kingdom, Samaria, whichever of those uh, synonyms you want to use to describe the larger of the two nations, uh, their days are numbered. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, this is taking place, we would say, pretty early on in Isaiah's very long prophetic ministry. Mm-hmm. And you have this you have this promise that you know the Lord is forgiving, the Lord is merciful, but like a stick of dynamite with a very very long wick, uh, eventually his patience can and does run out with sin. Mm-hmm. And the people of Israel have been. You know, we 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 won't want to say something like they've been earning the punishment, but realistically, they've been earning the punishment. They've been an unfaithful wife. They've been given into idolatry for centuries now, and the time is coming for the people of Israel to uh, pay the piper, as the expression goes. Right. And, and yeah, yeah. So you do have that. Um, in chapter eight, in the first part, where it is, there is something of a an emphasis on talking about Samaria, the northern kingdom, um, and then we saw mm-hmm. after that it very quickly trans uh, transitions into the the south, though as well, talking about the idolatry that happened under you know Uzziah and especially Jotham and Ahaz, that the south was going to be judged, and there was that you know very intro. We talked about the water yesterday, how. Yeah, you know, you, you didn't like the waters of uh, Shiloah that were gentle and flowing g- uh, gently and easily. But so now, yeah, the Assyrians are going to come and take care of your enemies, but they're also going to start sweeping you away. And so you, you get this um, this very dark prediction that Judah is going to be thrown into disarray. The agriculture is going to be wiped out. The water will be, go up to their necks, right? You know, this is this is Emmanuel. Yeah, God's with you, and you're going to survive, but God's with you. And it's like you were mentioning the fire here. He's going to be burning up um, the sin in Judah, punishment against them as well. So we, that, that was kind of the thought, right, that, that, we, that we ended on um, in, in verse 22, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And, and then you get this comment here, which is which is our verse one in chapter nine, but in the Hebrew it's verse twenty three. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And then it starts talking about Zebulun and, and, and Naphtali. So, like, what's the transition going from you know judgment in Judah that that Judah is just going to you know barely eke out survival here? Um, and then moving into this part here about uh, going going back to this comment about because these are northern tribes, right? Yeah, if you uh, if you look at a map of the tribes, and if you if any of your listeners have your Lutheran Study Bible available, there's a pretty good map on page 365. Nice round number, easy to remember. Mm-hmm. And if you look at there, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali and the Promised Land, they are on the northwest section. So Naphtali is to the west and north of the Sea of Chenereth, which we would later as Christians recognize is the Sea of Galilee. And then Zebulun is a little, it's to Naphtali southwest. It's completely surrounded by the other tribes. But Naphtali's northern border is actually the pagan country. They Mm -hmm. exist on the very periphery of the promised land. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And so what that means is that when that judgment starts to really uh, pick up steam, and the judgment in the Old Testament it usually comes from the north, well, mm -hmm. they're one of the northern tribes on the border. They're going to suffer first. Mm -hmm. So th th those living in Naphtali, I mean, they're going to be in contempt. They're going to be treated like nothing by the invading hordes, and they're going to suffer long before the rest of their fellow Israelites suffer. They're going to start suffering even before Judah really starts to feel the pinch. Right. So so that's important to, like, you know, as you were saying, kind of, like, visualize and kind of maybe think about in terms of, like, a map here. When you say Zebulun and Naphtali, um, to, together, this is sort of functioning as a way of describing this this northern border, the, the first to fall. And so it, it seems that after chapter eight describing, okay, you know, first th this, this water, right, is going to sweep over the north and then it's going to sweep on down into Judah. It seems like in chapter nine now we're, we're moving on to this idea that, okay, so first devastation came to the north and then to the south. But so going back to the north, that devastation and that darkness and that judgment, there will be an end to it. So it, it seems mm -hmm. like there's this this idea of okay, so just the north fell first, and then the, and then the south suffered substantially. So now we're going to talk about salvation for the north and salvation for the south. Like there's this, um, and and, that, and that's where we're going to get to with this whole dawn idea. That in some ways, almost mm -hmm. it seems like the people who fell first are the first to to see the dawn. Yeah, I think uh, if I think as we continue, we're going to see when. When Isaiah prophesies in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, and he's, that's a specific uh, location that travels through Neft Naphtali and Zebulun. He really will make that way glorious because that's where the Messiah is going to come from. Well, let's go ahead and, and read that portion here. So this, so actually at verse 2, this is where you get into the, the poetic prophecy here. And uh, perhaps we, mm, you know, probably makes sense to break this down because once you get into the, the Messianic titles, um, that kind of deserves its own uh, attention, really, its own its own moment of reflection. So let's go ahead and maybe read two through five here, and we can talk about the part you just referenced. So this is verse two. Okay. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." All right. So, I mean, with that last comment, you know, it, it sounds kind of like what we saw earlier in Isaiah that, you know, beating the swords into plowshares, that idea that, you know, all the all the instruments of war will be done away with here. It's the, the, the boots and the garments of battle will be will be burned up. There, there, there's no more war. There is no more sorrow here. There's there's now joy and increase. And like you said, um, it's it's dealing with these i mean what, what's this what's the description it's um those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness and so yeah. th this is talking about the, the north you were saying 
Yeah, specifically, the, the context of this prophecy zeroes in on Zebulun and Naphtali, and I, I think we need to especially establish really fast what is meant by deep darkness. Hmm. Because if you look at the average number of days of nice blazing Middle Eastern sunshine that they get in the northern part of the Promised Land, uh, that's not a land of deep darkness. That's actually an incredibly, even painfully bright location of creation. Hmm. So what, what exactly is this deep darkness that we're referring to? Hmm. Go, you go on ahead and answer your rhetorical question here. <laughs> well, the, the most obvious answer is when we compare Jesus as the light of the world, meaning this is the prophecies... Uh, culmination, the, the great light is the light of the world who did indeed walk in those areas when the prophecy was fulfilled, you have the darkness of sin, the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of those who, by their own choosing, have heard that there is a God in Israel and instead decided that they're going to follow these other gods instead. Or maybe they're going to follow these other gods and just kind of keep uh, some token service to Yahweh just in case, like, as you know, fire insurance or whatever. Right, that kind of syncretism, worshiping Yahweh alongside other gods, as, as uh, we mm-hmm. talked about how that's actually uh, kind of the emphasis of the first commandment, you know, worshiping uh, other gods in the presence of, of Yahweh, before Yahweh, in that sense of the Hebrew. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and yesterday we were talking about darkness. We were talking about how there's this this mixed metaphor here how um god how emmanuel is on the one hand it's a stumbling block on the other hand it's a sanctuary it depends on whether you have the light of the word if you have the light of the word then it's it's just dark for you and you're going to trip over this rock um but if you have light you see it as a refuge and so this the, the light of the word makes makes all the difference and so as you said there's uh, on the one sense, a spiritual a spiritual description of darkness that it's kind of spiritual blindness, the idolatry that that ignores the word or doesn't know the word of God. But then on the mm-hmm. other hand, um, as as we saw at the end of chapter eight, you know, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. There's a sense where it's it's also referring metaphorically to the the product, to the physical products of that, that the actual literal. Um, chaos, the the kind of temporal disarray and devastation that results from not having things spiritually ordered well. And, and we saw that, uh, I think it was, was that back in chapter 7? If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you don't have uh, faith and firmness there, you're not going to have even temporal peace either. So darkness ends up being both those things. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what else to add to that. I mean, it's absolutely correct. <laughs> well, so, so the question then, I, I think, you know, I, I, um, I, totally, I totally agree with you that this, of course, this prophecy gets fulfilled in the biggest way with the coming of our Lord Jesus, who deals with the spiritual side of this darkness. The question that's maybe more challenging that we probably won't have a chance to answer till after we get back from the break is, so how does it get dealt with on the, the physical temporal side of this? Because a, a lot of commentators will look at this and say, well, uh, you know, maybe with Emmanuel, we could say that that's sort of fulfilled in the day of Hezekiah. 
um, because certainly God does spare his people. They're not totally wiped out in the south. Jerusalem is able to survive the Assyrian onslaught just barely. So there is that fulfillment that happens in the lifetime of Isaiah and uh, Hezekiah. But uh, in their lifetime, did the North ever see recovery? Did the North ever receive relief? That's that's an, a harder question. But we'll have to turn to that after our break. So everybody hang with us here on Thy Strong Word. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll be right back. I'm Jay Ashcroft, Missouri's Secretary of State. Our securities division works hard to protect Missouri investors. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Call us to learn if your investment advisor is properly registered. Give us a call today at 800-721-7996 and check with us before you write the check. Sponsored by Missouri's Secretary of State, Securities Division, Investor Education, and Protection Fund. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. This week on Lamplighter Theater. I'm here to rescue you from that sad one-horse town of Overbrook. Introduce you to the city where there's music, drank, beautiful girls. I read last night how Jesus was abused, even tortured. But he forgave. That's, that's why he came. But he was God. He should have punished his abusers. Don't miss the next Lamplighter Theater. Saturday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, and we're joined today by Pastor Bernard Ross, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Alma, Missouri. And we were just looking at this question of, okay, darkness is something that symbolizes both spiritual disarray, um, that lack of having the light of the word, but but also temporal and physical disarray, what naturally results from a person, but especially a people or even a government, uh, not having any reverence for God and, and the chaos that will inevitably result from that. I think yesterday we had, um, I'm trying to recall if this was, if it was Pastor Lekomsky or it may, actually it may have been Pastor Boisclair two days ago looking at chapter seven, he referenced um, Thomas More, who was talking about what happens when a nation or a government doesn't have any acknowledgement of God. And so looking at darkness in this, you know, complete and holistic way, the question is, well, hang on a second. When did the North ever really physically recover? And um, that's kind of the more challenging question. As we turn to that question, I invite everybody listening live. If you do have a thought or comment or question, it doesn't have to be about that particular anything in Chapter 9's fair game. Do call in 314 821 
1-800-730-0850 if you're in St. Louis, but everybody, you can also call 1-800-730-2727 or send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. So, right. So, so, so Bernard, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, like temporally speaking, like, is there some kind of um, local fulfillment, typological fulfillment here, or, you know, I think, uh, it was actually with Pastor Boisclair, I think he, he used that term rectilinear. Is this simply a rectilinear prophecy that draws a straight line from Isaiah to Jesus with nothing in between? Like your, your thoughts on the, the physical side of the darkness? Well, given that, uh, we have to take scripture, as a whole, we don't want to isolate anything. I, I say that we can see some fulfillment even during Isaiah's lifetime, given the context of Isaiah's books so strongly emphasizing salvation for the Gentiles. Hmm. I think there is a way to see that. So, so go ahead. The way I would sketch that out. Yeah. Is that Looking at Isaiah 9, looking at the prophecies that, yes, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, if we're going to try to nail down how is that fulfilled in Isaiah's lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, we, we do have our work cut out for us. Because after all, you have the promised land, you have this inheritance given to the people of God, and then the Israelites in Isaiah's lifetime, what happens to them? You have the fall of Samaria in 722. Mm-hmm. You have the Assyrians basically rounding up and deporting mass, mass numbers of Israelites to the other corners of the empire because that was just a standard practice in the ancient world. You don't want people to feel too strongly tied to their land if they're conquered. You want to get rid of them, otherwise they'll eventually... Uh, rise in patriotism and become problems for you. I mean, the the Jews certainly proved that with the Romans later on. Mm-hmm. But then it, right. part of this depopulation isn't just that the Israelites were removed, it's that other peoples were brought in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have these people from all over the, the Assyrian Empire, which would include later on the region we know as Babylon. Mm-hmm. You have these people being you know, moved in and settled in the promised land. You have these unclean pagans and Gentiles being moved into the houses and the towns formerly Mm -hmm. occupied by those who at least in name were the people of God and covenant had broken the covenant, but they were still God's people. Right. And so I, I guess you could say, given the proximity that all of a sudden you have all of these Gentiles from all over that part of the world being brought into the region occupied by God's people, and you had you had a pretty efficient government with the Assyrians. I mean, they were able to keep peace and order. Mm-hmm. You could say that the the fulfillment could have been at least in a temporal way that those areas suffered invasion, they suffered depopulation, and all the horrors that being conquered comes with it. But after that, in Isaiah's lifetime, you had peace. Right. You had you had violence still be with empires, you know, aiming at Jerusalem and Judah. But right. for the most part, in the land of Israel, in Isaiah's lifetime, you did have peace and prosperity. You had calm, and you had all these Gentiles who suddenly were 
physically much, much closer to Judah, much, right. much closer to the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Yeah. And you could have had some evangelical fervor of those who heard Isaiah say all these things about the Gentiles being brought in and claimed by God. He right. said, well, right. these Gentiles have literally been brought to us. Let's go tell them who Yahweh is. Right. Yeah, Bernie, I I think that you're 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 absolutely right. I, I'm totally on the same wavelength with you. I think I think this is something that gets skipped over because it's kind of hard and messy historically to make sense of. But I mean, I think you're right that in in the time of Isaiah, like you do actually have a time of peace. And yeah, it's it's not it's not everything that we'd want to see. It's not like the north, like you know, comes around to you know, full worship of, of, of Yahweh again. And like, oh yeah, we have the 10 tribes restored. It's not like, you know, um, I, idyllic by any, by any stretch, but you do have a, a kind of limited temporal peace, as you said, under the Assyrians. And, you know, there, there is this light, I think, which is actually dawning in the South in Hezekiah, when you have this, this survival of this remnant in the South there, there is something of a re- rebuilding, and as we're going to see, you know, this these um, sweeping reforms that come in, and we we throw down um, the the poles and the 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 worship with the trees, and we we get rid of the idols out of the temple, and there is this light dawning um, for this short time, this this short respite from the spiritual darkness that happens under Hezekiah, and the north. It's hard to imagine that they don't benefit from this in some way. As you said, literally God has brought the nations to the doorstep of his temple. They're there in the north, not very far at all. They're actually in a position where you could actually have someone go from the north and actually make the trip up to the temple where they would see this light in the midst of the darkness. So, you know, it, it does seem like you, you actually, when, once the Assyrian invasion is, is over, there, there is this time of peace that kind of comes from the south, but in the same way that you see the dawn, see the sunrise from a long ways off, there is some benefit for the north as well. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I, I think one thing that we need to also remember in the historical context is that Whereas the, the Israelites, they had the covenant relationship, Yahweh is the only God, the other gods are, you know, they're, they're, they're not there, they're demons or whatnot. I think one thing we have to recognize is that with these pagans being populated into the area formerly known as Israel or Samaria, when, when they hear there's other gods out there, they, they had a more of a inclusive mindset of, oh, well, there's this other God who's done these powerful things in the past. I should probably figure out who this God is so that I can serve him too. And, you know, it's easy to see that and to just roll your eyes and say, oh, you silly pagans, you don't get it. But given that natural mindset they would have of being inclusive and seeing how many gods can I worship, part of doing that is that you have to learn who those gods are. You Mm -hmm. have to learn about them. And I, yeah. I have no doubt, given that the Lord's desire is yeah. to save, you know, not just some people, not just an elect, but to save all people, as his right. son went to the cross for all people. Right. I have no doubt that there were some pagans who, in looking into this Yahweh, became believers and did follow the example of Judah, and they 
They threw out their household gods. They stopped praying to the rising sun. They stopped bowing down before the starry host. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I think. I think that that um that makes a lot of sense to me. That you know, in in a lot of ways, you know, with Jerusalem, you know, under Hezekiah, being able to just you know barely eke out um a, a W, as least as they're counting it. You know, of course, the Assyrians <laughs> walk away being like, yeah, we won. They paid tribute. We you know wiped out most of Judah, so they're counting it as a W also. But with the way that you know they do call off the invasion, finally, there is a time of temporal peace because Jerusalem was able to stand. And that as a result, as you said, you know, God was able to work good out of that sort of, you know, pluralistic, syncretistic, you know, like just, uh, you know, cafeteria view of worshiping all the gods, right? So that, yeah, the North actually had the opportunity to hear like the, the pure, unadulterated word of the Lord, which was, you know, restored. And so we've been talking about the light of the word. That was what we were talking about in chapter eight. So it's because the word gets restored in the South that there's a light. I mean, and, and that's, and that's, I think the connection then that you can make that you see more clearly then um, when it comes to the time of Christ, because Jesus Christ is the word of God. Right. And, and so when, when you see it like that, you know, it, it really emphasizes it emphasize we made the connection to John one earlier, but it emphasizes how you see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment and a more radical one because here, as we've been saying, here the light is coming from Judah, which which seems to be kind of like the way that Isaiah's been talking the whole time. But the word goes forth from Judah and all the streaming goes into the temple, right? Um, so, uh-huh. so it's all this light coming from Judah kind of thing. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, the the, the crazy thing about it, right? is that the light actually crops up in the north. <laughs> like, actually, yeah, he does, we have Jesus this, of Nazareth. Uh, yeah, we, we, speaking of Nazareth, uh, you know, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, if you look at the New Testament locations that are actually found in Zebulun and Naphtali, what do you see? Well, that's where you see Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tiberias, you have Nazareth in the land of Zebulun. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, but sure enough, that's where it is. Right. And so you have this fulfilled in a way that is above and beyond any possible expectation that when the light that shines in the darkness that cannot be overcome by the darkness starts shining. Right. Yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He went to... The temple, when he was an infant, they fled to Egypt. They came back, but as soon as they came back, let's say Jesus was hmm, four or five years old. Right. I'm just guessing. Right. From that point in time until his ministry began, and even until he goes to Jerusalem, he's up there in Zebulun and Naphtali. Right. He and, is uh... in this region that formerly was brought into contempt, and now the light is shining there, and what what God said would happen is precisely what happens. Yeah, and I, and I like what, the way you put it. I think the key word there is unexpected, that this unexpected above and beyond fulfillment, 
I mean, I, I think this is the thing that sometimes we read the Bible and, you know, you read uh, Isaiah 9, and you're like, oh, see, look, of course, of course they should have been expecting the Messiah to come from the north, right? Of course they should have been expecting uh, a Nazarene, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, hang on a second. We'll go back and read it in its context. And the, you would not actually expect that. Like you would, like we're saying, you would expect that what's going on is that, you know, in the same way that, you know, Hezekiah, you know, is going to, you know, uh, you kind of like take the light of God's word, you know, off the dusty shelf, you know, dust it off and open it up and yeah. that light's going to shine forth from Judah. You would expect that the Messiah would come from Judah, you know, um, you know, yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe even that's Jerusalem. basically the mindset that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had. Exactly. I mean, they, they had their stronghold in the south of the promised land around Jerusalem and they were... There was a general mindset in the first century that, you know, nothing good is going to come from the north. Exactly. Those are the those are the Jews who have been infected with, mm -hmm. you know, the Gentiles. They're impure. Exactly. They're unclean. Even Christ's own disciples, I mean, what would they say? Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Well, mm -hmm. Nazareth mm -hmm. was in the north. It was one right. of those towns that was more... Uh, I guess you could say more Gentile or more Roman than it was Jewish. And so mm -hmm. no one would have expected the Messiah to actually come from there until after it happened. Exactly. Right. And, and we can't give, you know, we, we do this too often. We just kind of read the Bible and we, we kind of think everyone's really dumb or something, you know, and we just give them all a hard time and we say like, well, if, you know, if I had been, you know, in their shoes, I wouldn't have been so dense. And it's like, come on, like you're, 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 uh, we're, we're, we're not being humble when, when we, or charitable when we, when we read that way, we probably almost certainly would have thought the same thing and also missed it ourselves. Uh, I, I think it's really good that we were able to spend some time on these first five verses, because I mean, that's probably in some ways, as we were, as you were saying that the part that you kind of got your work cut out for you in terms of understanding it the right way, the part that gets skipped over the most, but we do want to make sure we read the whole rest of the chapter here. So kind of moving a little bit uh, more quickly, let's take a, just a couple minutes to go over verses six and seven, because that's when you get all these messianic titles. And so let's talk about those. And then we'll want to read probably the rest of the chapter in a larger chunk just you know, when we're done discussing the messianic titles and we'll have just a couple minutes to maybe make at least like kind of a few highlight comments and observations on that uh, second half of the chapter so let's go ahead and look at these first uh first let's look at these six and seven these verses here for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All right. So this is this is one of those things where I, I feel like, as we've been saying, it's really easy just to skip over anything that might have happened, you know, around like 700 B.C., because I think that the way I typically hear this is, hey, look, guys, it says wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting oh, yeah. prince of peace. Yeah. It, it's clearly saying that the Messiah is going to be God. Um, and and so everyone should have been waiting for God. Why were the disciples so dense? I mean, isn't 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 that kind of how you've heard it many that's times. pretty standard i think uh 
I think you just summed up 90% of American Christians just like that. <laughs> yeah, so... But I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm any better. I mean, I've done that, too. I've just, you know, you glance over it, you're you're in a hurry, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is about the Messiah. Moving on. Right, so, right, right. Well, so so give, a, give us more context, then. Well, you have this promise during the time of Isaiah, so the late, uh, mid to late 700s, about God's people will be delivered. There will be a light, and there will be, there will be someone who is born that will indeed be this light that shines for the people. This person will be born that will have all of this uh, blessing from God in order to accomplish God's work. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think a, a lot of us tend to forget is that the the ancient Jews were absolutely convinced that if you look at, let's say, Isaiah 7 and 9, that Hezekiah was the man that this all fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even if you look at uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, that's what Trifo is saying. He's objecting to Justin using Isaiah 7 and 9 to point to Jesus because he said, well, no, we know that's Hezekiah. Right. Why are you saying this? Exactly. And so I, I think one of the ways we can uh, stumble as we read the scriptures is to try to be too confining or constricting in how we read it. Right. And, you know, and that, that's really well said. And I'm glad you, you, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the dialogue with Trifo and uh, Justin Martyr. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We can't skip over it. Hezekiah, that, that he was a king. He was a good king. You know, the, the scriptures make make a, some mention of him. Spend some time talking oh, about yeah, him. Oh, he, yeah, he was fantastic. I mean, in terms of being a king, I mean, they, right. they celebrate the Passover for the first time under him that mm-hmm. wasn't even done properly under David. Right. I mean, exactly. that, so there's lots of good things there. In the context there. And, of the um, Old Testament, that's huge. Yes, and, and and that that name there, you get like mighty God, right? I mean, so in Hebrew, right, that you get something like you know El Gabor, and you know it's it's interesting that we you know have it like mighty God there, but um, you know it doesn't necessarily mean that you know so everyone thought that Hezekiah was God or something like that. You got two reasons, like one, you could translate that as you know God is mighty. Um, in the same yeah. way that, you know, Emmanuel can mean, you know, God with this, this is kind of the, the word play, right? It can mean God, God with us, or kind of actually probably more normally you would think it means God is with us. And that's certainly kind of the yeah. prominent meaning we saw in the previous chapter. God is with us. God is among us, you know, for better or for worse, for judgment and for blessing. And so all these yeah. titles, right, um, they can work messianically in the sense of Hezekiah, because, I mean, guess what? Hezekiah is the Messiah, literally speaking. He was anointed, he was anointed. to be king. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, uh, you're right. I mean, you see titles like Mighty God, Everlasting Father. You're like, oh, that that has to speak to Christ's divinity. And ultimately it does. Yes. And yet in the historical context, ancient Jews were given names like the Lord saves, for instance, that's my favorite example, it's mm-hmm. Yeshua. Well, right. does that point ahead to Jesus? Yes. Yes. And yet Joshua, son of Nun, had the exact same name, and he was a human being who lived and died. Right, and he didn't die for the sins it of the world. It was common for devout Jews to give their children names that invoked the name of God. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was not unusual in the least. Right. 
So, so then what is, here's the, the, the last question I want to make, and then we just got to do the rest of the chapter all in one go. But like, so how does that help us to understand our Lord Jesus seeing him as an anti-type then of Hezekiah, seeing this typologically fulfilled first in a small way with Hezekiah and then in a big way with Christ? What does that connection show us about Jesus? Well, I think the connection obviously can be seen that there are many things in common. Of course, we have the full humanity of Christ, and he is a human just like Hezekiah was. Mm -hmm. So Hezekiah was conceived, he was born Christ, he was immaculately conceived, but just like Hezekiah, he grew in the womb, he was born, he ate food, drank water, lived in the same region of the world. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of uh, it's this idea that when God makes a promise, He's able to keep it, and the fulfillment is always greater than the initial promise. It seems when you read the scriptures, right? And, and the big way, I mean, if you think of Hezekiah as you know, he's taking the Torah off of off of the dusty shelf and opening it up and saying, "Hey guys, don't forget about the word. This is the word." And they're like, "Wow, this is the word of God." But it's like we've forgotten about it all this time. And you mentioned they celebrate Passover for the first time in like who knows how long, right? Well, think about that mm-hmm. then. Here's Jesus. He's opening up the scriptures, right? Remember what it says like uh, this was in Luke, right? But he opens their minds to really see the scriptures for what they really are, right? He's the one who opens up the scriptures and makes them really understandable for us, and he's the one who gives us a true Passover, and that's the point of John that we saw, right? Like, we finally are celebrating the Passover the way God really intended it. So those things really stand out to you when you see Jesus as, like, the true Hezekiah. And you could go into more depth, but we just don't have time for it. So at this point, I just kind of need to read the rest of the chapter, and then maybe you got—we'll uh, see if you have more than 60 seconds, I'm sorry, <laughs> to, to make a comment or two about the second half of the chapter. But let's go ahead and read read 8 through, what is it, is it 20 here? 20, 21, yeah. 21, okay, so we'll read this last part, and then we'll have time just for maybe like a highlight or two, maybe your favorite verse in the section here. Um, it's fine, the first several cha- uh, verses here in this chapter are just so key, so it's, it's fine to spend more time on them, but here we are picking it up at verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of reason against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head and the prophet who teaches lies who teaches lies is the tale for those who guide this people have been leading them astray and those who are guided by them swallowed up therefore the lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows for everyone is godless and an evil doer and every mouth speaks folly for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. 
through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So, yeah, we only have like, you know, literally 60 seconds here, but, you know, his hand is stretched out still. So why this transition or or, may, or maybe... um maybe just a highlight from this as a concluding thought here. Uh, Well, to go really fast first, it makes me want to cling to my savior because those people were no more sinful than I was. Right. Right. (laughs) So right, right off the bat hearing that I makes me want to cling to Jesus that much more. Uh, Second uh, resin in fact was dealt with just as Isaiah promised. If you want Mm -hmm. to look at the details of that in second Kings 16, uh, resin is taken care of in right. a very uh, earthly way, and yet the Lord, of course, works through earthly means to accomplish his godly purposes. Mm-hmm. And then the, the final note I would say is uh, so years ago there was a very famous book that looked at verses 9 and 10, and they talked. They tried to tie it into September 11th and some words mm-hmm. that were spoken, and it's a kind of a warning that you don't want to take the word of the Lord and apply it in a impure way, uh, that mm-hmm. book, The Harbinger, lots of Christians read it, and realistically, they probably shouldn't have, but they did. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is like, a, it's a sober, yeah, yeah, I think it's a good sobering thought. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it is something just all of it, you just want to cling to Jesus all the more. We are sinful, and it's not surprising that we would experience temporal judgment or even calamities as a result of our sin, especially our corporate sin as a, as a nation. But you, you got to mm-hmm. have, you got to have some caution. You can't be foolhardy and just go one-to-one here. You got to understand there's an original context here and have some humility before we uh, make any leaps. But certainly the, the big thing, it does clearly point to Christ. It does so through Hezekiah, showing him as the ultimate ultimate Hezekiah and king. And so uh, I thank you so much, brother. We're all out of time, but helping us unpack that and see that more clearly today. It was a pleasure. I only hope that what I did was pleasing in God's sight. So, Amen. I believe it was. Everybody, that was Pastor Bernard Ross, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Alma, Missouri. Thanks for tuning in. Check out our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, lhfmissions.org. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Until next time, everybody, peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.